The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. I am a model by profession. That's how I've made a living. And models especially are silent figures generally. Even in the age of influencer type models, there's a wall, sort of a separation. You know, anything that's ever been written about me in a magazine was often written by someone else or almost always. Until now, Emily Ratajkowski is writing in her own words. I started writing a collection of essays, and this is one of those essays that New York Magazine was generous enough to give me the opportunity to publish. And it comes out tomorrow. How are you feeling? Good. I feel a little, um, like, excited and scared. Emily's essay in this week's issue is called Buying Myself Back. And it starts with a story from 2019. So I was with my friend in the East Village walking my dog, and I got this text from uh, my mom's ex-husband, who's a lawyer, and gets Google alerts from me. And he was like, so you're being sued. And I was like, what? (laughs) For what, you know? And I found out that it was for a post I had done on my Instagram stories of a picture of me that a paparazzi took outside of my apartment where I'm holding flowers in front of my face, trying to shield my face from from the paparazzi. Because you have paparazzi pretty much every day outside your apartment? I do. Um, Mostly men. Um, Actually, I think like all men, there's maybe one woman who I've seen like maybe twice in my life. And it's hard because, you know, sometimes these images get me write-ups in Vogue because I looked cute when I was walking my dog. And that's obviously, you know, good for my overall image in the world. There's also this feeling of, like, whatever image is taken of me on any given day could just be, like, the image that you see when you Google my name for my whole life, (laughs) which is a really weird concept. I told my husband that when we were dating early on because he was like, fuck them, like, wear whatever you want or whatever. And I was like, but dude, like, think about that. <laughs> you know, it's not something I try to think about every day, but it is also a real, a real thing, a real possibility. Although Emily didn't think she could get sued for posting a paparazzi picture that was taken without her consent in the first place. That picture where she is obviously covering her face with a bunch of flowers. The lawyer who's suing me, who filed the case, he files these cases Serially, like Amy Schumer and Bella Hadid had also had similar situations, and I talked to them about it. You know, it's a great way for these paparazzi to make money because a lot of people are just like, okay, what do you want? Like, I'll settle with you out of court. And, you know, it never even goes in front of a judge. But this one was particularly ironic because I posted the picture to make a statement about my relationship to the paparazzi. Um, because I'm like so clearly hiding behind this vase of flowers, trying to hide and not have my picture taken right outside of my apartment. Emily has had a complicated relationship with Instagram long before this particular paparazzi debacle from last year. Because when she was rising in her career in her early 20s, she used to feel like Instagram was hers. I really loved Instagram, especially at that point in my life. It felt like the thing that where I did have control over my image and what I put into the world. And this is who I am and nobody else, you know, can curate that. 
was about six years ago, when Emily was 23, that she learned this wasn't quite the case. My ex-boyfriend was getting involved with collecting art and had a friend at a very important gallery. He called him and was like, oh, this Richard Prince show, Emily's in the show. There's a picture of her from her Instagram. Like, I'm giving you the heads up because, like, maybe you could get it. The artist Richard Prince made a series called Instagram Paintings, where he took screenshots from Instagram and printed them on canvas. One was a picture Emily had posted on Instagram after her first appearance in Sports Illustrated. One part of me was like, oh, that's so cool. So I understood the Warholian approach to the image and Instagram. And, you know, and I also studied art at UCLA and my dad's a painter. Um, But I also was like, wait, how much are these selling for? (laughs) Like, that's, um, that's a picture of me. Like, I, that picture was my crop. My, I chose to, to share it, like the curation itself, which is, Honestly, a big part of Richard Prince's process is like, I chose this picture, right? That says a lot, but I chose it originally, (laughs) you know? So they offered it to us for um, $80,000. And, you know, I was like starting to make enough money to be able to afford that kind of stuff and was like, it's a good investment from what I understood about the world of art, which was, you know, a decent amount. Anyway, Long story short, the gallerist called my boyfriend at the time back and was like, actually, it sold. Sorry, buddy, like a big time collector took it. And then later, a friend of a friend told me that the gallerist had the piece hanging in his house. So he'd actually taken it for himself. And just lied to you about it. Yeah, I mean, which later, like, my ex confronted him and he was like, sorry. Fortunately or maybe unfortunately, Richard Prince had made another Instagram painting of Emily, and so Emily and her ex bought it and split the price. It was probably the biggest purchase I'd ever made, aside from, like, a place to live, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it was really um, fancy and a big deal. So when it came, um, you know, I had seen online, I had, I'm, you know, I'd been following, like, other models and whatever, just personalities, and I'd seen that they'd be like, thanks, Richard Prince, like, you sent me the study for this. And the study is just a smaller version of the larger pieces. Um, they were gifting them to subjects, and I was a little bit upset when the, when the large painting came that we'd paid for, and there was no study. They called up Richard Prince's studio, who then sent a study to Emily. Well, at least I have this study. Um, It's, like, gave me some kind of feeling of, like, well, that's fair, you know? But then I ended up actually having, in my breakup with my boyfriend, he um, asked me to pay for it. So I ended up having to buy, buy it back from him. I still don't have an issue necessarily with the work itself. I think that for me it was about later like having to buy back an image that felt so clearly like it was my a gift to me especially from somebody that I had trusted so much and like feeling like wait dude like come on that's a picture of me like why what are you gonna do like sell it like sell an image of your ex-girlfriend to make a profit you know you know for me there was a feeling of like all these these guys some of them who were like super intimate sort of feeling like they had a right to to my image 
in a way that, you know, when, when you're negotiating a job, it feels really different because you are saying like, for this amount, I will do this. This will be the usage of it. You know, that's like the basics of um, modeling. And I also think that the internet felt really different to me. Like the internet felt like a place that I had a lot of control in because I was, you know, had this relationship to my Instagram. All of a sudden it was like this thing had been taken off the internet and been recontextualized as a valuable and important piece of art. Where does this come? Where do my rights and ownership and consent and collaboration come into play? And where is there ownership for the world because I've put this image out there? Yeah. And I mean, you know, what does it mean if we were to let subjects have control. You know, you studied art. Art history is full of unwitting, you know, Dorothea Lange photographs, like photographs of people who didn't know they were being photographed. And, you know, if I were to take this interview with you and you were like, I don't like it, what does it mean to give people control of their own public image? In some ways, it seems incredible, but in other ways, it seems kind of dangerous, you know? Yeah, um... I mean, I think about this now. I run my own business um, and clothing company, and we work with models. And I obviously have a different idea of what the best picture is than they might. Sometimes I'm like, wow, this puts me in a very, like, on the other side of this. Um, or and even as a writer, like, if I'm sure if I gave a lot of my work over to the people I'm writing about, they would cross out all of it. <laughs> um, but as somebody who's worked as a model and an actress, where you're basically like a part of someone else's vision. When you are on set and you're there, you are consenting to a collaboration. Like this interview, for example, like I listened to your podcasts before and was like, okay, I'm going to trust her to edit this and like give her this interview. And that doesn't mean that you need to send me the recording. You know what I mean? Um, but that's really different. Also, if you then like decided to take this interview and, you know, write a book on it and use it for a completely different purpose, that'd be really different, right? Really, really different. And Emily is actually referencing a specific time that her trust was betrayed in this regard. As a warning, the second part of Emily's essay deals with an instance of assault. But first, we'll take a break. Yeah, so this piece of the essay, which is really kind of the biggest piece, this this particular chunk was actually like not something that I initially thought I would maybe include. It was something that I couldn't even talk about for a really, really long time. Um, and I think by writing about it, re like reading it, <laughs> editing it, being mean to myself, being nice to myself, feeling all the different kinds of things every time I would work on it, um, that I was able to sort of be like, you know what, I actually do want to include this in this piece about image and power and consent. I graduated high school in 2009, so it was the year that, like, the market crashed, and I was going to UCLA for art, which, like, definitely didn't feel like a, you know, pathway to a career. And all my friends who were older were, like, moving home to their parents' houses, and I started to, like, book more and more jobs. I started to make all this money. I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'm free. So my agent said, I think you should come to New York because that's really, like, where fashion and stuff is. And this is, like, your opportunity to take this to the next level. 
So I moved into um, a shitty apartment in the East Village that I paid way too much money for and had bed bugs and like a pigeon built a nest in my bathroom one day. (laughs) Um, Just like shit like that. But I was really determined. My agent that was out here had signed me at 14 and it felt like a really big deal that she had wanted me to take this next step. So one of her jobs was just building my portfolio, um, which means getting me to shoot with the right photographers so that I have a really strong book, which is just a book of images of me, to book better jobs and make actual money. Magazines don't pay money. Like if you see a model inside of Vogue or Allure or whatever, they're not being paid. Maybe like 150 bucks or something, but you just basically do it so that you have the exposure and then the book. So um, the shoot with Jonathan came up that way, which was that, you know, it was an unpaid editorial for a magazine called Darius. She sent me this email, like, Jonathan letter. Here's a link to his work. And I remember seeing, like, a picture of women in, like, tall grass, like, very, like, beautiful heavenly light and long dresses. And, like, if anything, I think I thought, like, oh, it's going to be kind of boring. Like, I don't know if I really believe this guy's, like, a great photographer. (laughs) So um, the whole thing was like, you're going to take this bus, book it yourself, but he will refund you for the fare because that bus fare was a, like cost a lot of money for me at that point. And um, it was part of the deal, you know, and I was going to stay at his place for the night, which definitely was unusual. But um, anytime you traveled for a job, like you'd stay. Sometimes it would be like, somebody's house or a hotel or it just depended on the budget so it wasn't the most unusual um and yeah I guess I just was like whatever my agent wants like I will do because I am now following her lead as to how to build my career as a model it's so important I mean people talk about in the industry now you know like oh she's so nice she shows up and she'll just like do whatever and like it's so convenient and easy to work with Easy to work with, though, often means you don't say no. There's no pushback. You do what they want, whatever the set requires or the photographer requires. So um, when I got up there, he picked me up from the bus stop in Woodstock, and he had, like, a vintage car. He was older, and he was really disinterested in me. He seemed like he was very quiet, and he seemed kind of annoyed that he had to pick me up which automatically made me feel super uncomfortable. And then, yeah, we got to his place and there were two kids there. It made me feel weirdly closer to them than to him in some ways, because when I saw his kids, it felt more like, oh no, you're like a adult, (laughs) you know, which made him feel more grown up than me for sure. And at that point, it was kind of late, so I was getting a little weirded out because I remember really running the math in my head of when we were going to shoot and being like, okay, there's no way. Like, the light is now gone, so we have to be shooting tomorrow. Like, we'll probably shoot really early in the morning. That must be what's happening. But a makeup artist started setting up, and his kids got picked up, and he started making dinner. He was still really, like, not looking at me. But the more I felt him being dismissive and more not interested in me and writing me off, the more I really wanted to prove that I was cool and different and smart. (laughs) 
I remember like being like, Stanley Kubrick, like, what's your favorite? <laughs> Which is so painful to say even right now. Like, I hate that that's true. When he started making dinner and the makeup artist started doing my makeup, he um, opened a bottle of wine. And so, like, of course, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, I'll have some wine. I'm sophisticated, you know. Um, and he pulled out lingerie and I was like, oh, this is different. Um, than what I kind of thought, like, it's going to be sexy. He was talking more than he was sharing stuff about his, like, ex-wife and his ex-girlfriend who was only a year older than me. And I remember him, like, telling me that they had all been living together at one point and that his, like, ex-wife was, like, serving breakfast and the model, like, put her foot in his lap underneath the table with his kids, like... And I remember getting really stressed, like, hearing that story and being like, whoa, this made me feel really uncomfortable. So I was drinking a lot, and he showed me Polaroids of his ex-girlfriend, and they were super sexy, um, like old-school, kind of like 1950s, like mouth open, like fluffy hair, like boobies, you know? That was a really weird moment for me now. I can recognize it as internalized misogyny, but I felt really competitive in that moment. I was like, oh, he's shot other girls. And I just remember having this feeling of like, okay, I have a lot to prove here. Eventually we started shooting and at this point it was pretty late. Like I would imagine it was like 10 p.m. maybe. We went upstairs to this floral bedroom and I was really like 1940s style hair and rollers that had been taken out and red lipstick. And, you know, we shot some and I thought they looked really good. And he was like, these are so stiff. I really don't like these. Like, really disappointed, you know? And um, was like, fuck up her hair and, like, take off her red lipstick. Like, da, da, da. I remember he was, like, fooling with the camera's film and was like, let's, let's do naked now. You know, I'd been shot a lot, actually, naked before, all by men. And, you know, there was a part of me that was, like, really... Um, proud of my body because I'm only 5'7 and I have big boobs and, you know, I'd go into these castings and there'd be these, like, tall, like, I just didn't feel like a model. But I knew that, like, I booked a lot of jobs because of my waist <laughs> and, like, my boobs. And so it felt really good because I would, you know, be in lingerie or get naked and people were like, whoa, this is, like, an incredible body, you know? And it felt really powerful to have this, like, tool. But I think another part of me also, you know, couldn't handle the, like, intimacy of this moment of, like, Jonathan and the makeup artist in this tiny bedroom that I think was, like, maybe his daughter's or his kids. So I disassociated. And, you know, I, in general, I, as a young person, was disassociative to my body. And honestly, even now, I tend to do that around my body. And I think it has, it is a symptom of modeling for so long. But I remember sort of being like, really, I was really drunk. Um, so I was like seeing all these lights from the flash and I was on the bed posing and I was super focused on like what the images would look like, what I would look like in the pictures, not what Jonathan thought of me, not what I was feeling in myself, but like, these are going to be really powerful images. Jonathan kept making little comments about my body that weren't nice. They were like weird 
things that really have stuck with me, like about my nipples or about my weight and what he thought I was going to look like versus what I look like. And he really didn't want me to look at the Polaroids on my own. I think because he was scared that I was going to like Instagram one because he'd made a comment about, oh, you girls and your Instagram, like, I don't get it. But more than anything, it just felt like he like was hoarding them kind of like to his chest the whole night. And um, he definitely didn't like when I was looking at them, you know? And I would like kind of go over, but then he'd be like, okay, like moving on, you know, like let's do the next shot. The night when I mean, we shot for so long and we were in his living room and the makeup artist was really quiet. And uh, she left, she was like, okay, I'm going to bed. And I remember like a really distinct moment of her leaving because all of a sudden I was alone with him. The next part was just this really brutal memory that I had had buried for a long time um, because I felt so confused by it, I think is the right way to put it. We were on his couch talking and I remember it was really cold and um, he was asking me about boyfriends and I didn't, I, I didn't realize what was happening until I felt the way he was touching me. Like that was when I like was like, this isn't, like, this isn't right. I never was like, no, or stop, um, basically until it hurt. And I was like worried for my physical self that I like didn't, I actually didn't say anything. I just like grabbed his hand. And then he stood up really abruptly and like walked out of the room and I just kind of laid there and, um, and I had to kind of like make my way upstairs into this like cold bedroom that didn't have enough blankets. So it was cold. And I remember being like, what does it mean? Like, what does all this mean? I think I slept very little. I came from upstairs and I remember Jonathan was like, do you want a coffee? And, um, you know, I said, sure. I only had like an extra t-shirt to wear. So I like threw on a different t-shirt, but had on the same shorts. And I remember opening Instagram and seeing that he had actually posted a picture of me from the night before and captioned it iCarly, which was like in reference to this show I'd been on twice when I was in high school, like for two episodes. And, um, my first feeling was like, that's good. Maybe I like converted him a little bit to like Instagram because like Instagram's actually, you know, cool. And like maybe he realized that. And, and also like I was worthy enough to post. <laughs> like that means I made enough of an impression that like he wants to like show that he, he shot me. I got on the bus and I remember like hugging him and what his like shoulder blades felt like. And I remember him saying, bye, Eric Arley, and, like, turning and getting in his car. And I got on the bus, and I was freezing. Like, the main thing I remember was being really cold, and it was raining. And I realized, like, he hadn't fucking paid me for the bus fare. Years later, I got a call um, from a media outlet through my publicist, and they were reaching out because there was a book that was, like, called Emily Ratajkowski or Ratajkowski. And um, they were like, oh, Emily must be producing a book. Um, like, we want to talk to her about it and promote it. And my publicist was like, what do you know about this? So I Googled it, and there had already been a decent amount of press, um, kind of like hype beast type stuff, um, sharing all these really explicit images of me. Um, and I mean Polaroids um, that Jonathan had taken of me. 
And, you know, Jonathan had not reached out to me directly at all or through channels. I sent an email and, like, got a lawyer on the phone. And, you know, slowly but surely it was revealed to me that ultimately if I did go after him legally, the only thing I could do would be to get a percentage of the profit of the books or have them destroyed. But having them destroyed at that point wasn't that important to me because the images were all over the internet. And that was really what I wanted to not have happen. So I decided to tweet saying like, this was not, this was done without my consent. And um, it backfired. It brought more attention to the book. It brought them more sales. There were articles like the New York Post read an article. This is the art show, you know, Emily Ratajkowski doesn't want you to see. And the show in the Lower East Side was like completely overflowing with people staring at these images of me that I had openly said I didn't want in the world, you know? And there were all these people pouring out of this gallery and Jonathan was like kind of being toasted in the middle, you know? So it was a really hard lesson because basically I thought like, okay, I'm gonna like make my position clear. And then it felt like the whole world was basically like, so, like you're wrong. You took these pictures, like you posed for these pictures and therefore like we're gonna enjoy them. In some ways, I think, you know, there's sort of a wave of feminism that's like, listen, like we live in a patriarchy, like the way to get powerful and get money is like commodify yourself and, you know, learn to capitalize on your sex appeal and your image. And there's some truth to that. Like I own a home. I live a life that I wouldn't have lived if I had gone to UCLA for art. But... The truth is, is that ultimately there's only so much control you can have. He's going to do what he's going to do. And like, I don't have power in this situation. And when I tried to, to get power back, it didn't work out for me. So, so I mean, like, what is the lesson in all of this? Cause it's just like, there's nothing you can do. Well, yes. Um, but I'm talking to you about it right now. And I wrote this essay. And I think that the lesson is that you carve out control where you can find it. And that hopefully, I mean, we'll find out, you know, there is some power and something important that comes from telling your story. It's certainly a very specific, like, obviously we went from paparazzi to Richard Prince to this really specific story when I was 20. Like, um, it's very, you know, specific to me, but I believe the more specificity in stories, the more they tap into universal truths. The specificity of it provides, like, an opportunity to reveal this truth about power dynamics that's, I think, actually really universal for women because we live in a world where our truths and our perceptions are often very inconvenient. So I think um, when I was thinking about putting this out into the world, I was like, one, I need to do this for myself. Um, And it's really affirming of my reality and like, okay, this is what happened. But secondly, also, you know, maybe more importantly, that other women will recognize themselves in this piece and be like, holy shit, (laughs) 
these are power dynamics that we don't often acknowledge. Um, and they are so real and they can be so painful. Um, and that that's why I'm putting it out into the world. Now what I feel is that writing this essay is the best way for me to reclaim power because I'm able to talk about things that I would never be able to talk about had I just commodified my image further. Emily Ratajkowski. B.A. Parker is our show's lead producer. Production and editorial support from Allison Berenger. This episode was engineered and scored by Gautam Srikishan. Original music by Brandon McFarland and Ray Royal. Special thanks to Karinza Kadinas, Sangeeta Singh Kurtz, and Ode White. Stella Bugby and Nishat Kurwa are the show's executive producers. The Cut is made possible by the team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Truffleman. Thank you for listening. <laughs>